the humanities and social sciences. Welcome to another episode of Oh the Humanities and Social Sciences, the hashtag hashchat podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Melissa Riley, who is talking archaeology and history education. In this episode, I'm joined by Melissa Riley. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Um, before we get started looking at archaeology and history and education, uh, can you give the listeners a bit of a bio about yourself? What is your role in education? Uh, well, as of 2019, I actually have a new role, which is pretty exciting for me. I'm going to be heading up the history department at Our Lady of Mercy College in Parramatta. Um, previous to that, I've only been in the classroom for, and I say only, but it's actually quite a while, for um, 15 odd years. So uh, 10 years as a history teacher and another five years as keeping still a little bit of history teaching, but an, an IT coordinator as well. So it's pretty funny because my origins actually are, uh, before I came to education, I was an archaeologist. So people always used to make fun of me when I went into my IT role and said, I either like things that are extremely old or extremely new and nothing in between. But um, I'm really glad to be going back to the the history teaching side of it a bit more this year. I I did miss being in the classroom and, and miss the interaction with the students. One class just wasn't enough for me. As much as I do like the the tech side of teaching and learning, I'm, I'm happy to be uh, getting back in the classroom again and heading up my own department this year and, and implementing the kinds of history teaching ideas that I see a lot of on social media and and I hear from other colleagues about and and need more than one class to have a go at implementing. Right, thank you, thank you for that. Um, before we start looking at, um, at history education and um, archaeology education, um, can we have a sort of like a backtrack to back to when you were an archaeologist? So before everything else, yeah. Um, why, why archaeology? Why, why why did you choose to become an archaeologist? Uh, when I was 10, my dad actually gave me a book which was written by a man called Brian Fagan. He's a bit of a, um, I suppose you'd call him a popular archaeologist, so he writes lots of books for the general public about archaeology and they're a bit swashbuckling Indiana Jones type things and they're not necessarily inaccurate but they're they're not the kind of um, technical, scientifically um, methodological books that most archaeologists would, would engage with. So they're more for the general public anyway. So my dad bought me this book when I was 10. It's called The Adventure of Archaeology. And I think I have to say it was pretty much a goner from that point on. I read the book from cover to cover and I still have it, which is pretty funny. And I bring it out when I um, talk to my year seven classes about archaeology and the the cover of it, the dust jacket is all tattered and torn and the pages are all dog-eared. But um, it's a great illustration of how you can find something even when you're that young and have a passion about it that kind of develops immediately and then follow that through. So although I, I you know, I, I did do, uh, I did really enjoy this book and I loved history when I was at school and I, I you know, studied lots of it, um, I went through a, a kind of a, a doctor lawyer phase when I was at the tail end of high school thinking that's what I wanted to do but ended up enrolling um, in a general BA at first in um in at university wasn't really sure what I wanted to major in but picked archaeology as one of my subjects and returned to it and thought to myself yep this is exactly what I want to do this is how I felt the kind of spark that I felt when I was 10 again so um that's why I got into it I think I just have a real affinity with holding things in my hand that I know someone in, in not necessarily 
has to be a long time. But, you know, if you think about the fact that people have made stuff for thousands and thousands of years and then we dig it up and we're holding it in our hands and it's the kinds of stuff that we still have today, just even something simple like a pot, it's pretty mind-blowing. And I, I do also like the scientific side of it. So I also enjoyed science when I was at school as well. So archaeology is very much a subject that kind of straddles both the humanities and sciences in as much as it deals with people and the human past but um, in its methodology, it's very scientific in the way we go about, um, you know, putting forward a hypothesis, gathering evidence, testing our research, that kind of thing. So I think that's the reason why, um, I mean, I liked it initially because it was exciting and then it, it drew me back a, as a, a young person at university for the scholarship side of it. Well, thank you for that. Now, you mentioned Indiana Jones. It'll be remiss of me <laughs> to mention that again. Um <laughs> Indiana Jones. What are your thoughts on <laughs> now? In the Indiana Jones franchise is probably one of my uh, my um, top five sort of movie franchises of all time, um, up there with Jurassic Park, which actually want, made me want to become a paleontologist when I was about, you know, when I was a, a little kid. Um, Same with me. Didn't happen. <laughs> um, but Indiana Jones. Do you, do you think that has that hurt or um, or sort of helped the the uh, archaeology profession? Do you think it's done both? It's done both. I have to say the. The franchise itself is one of my favourite movie franchises as well. They're so entertaining. Um, the idea is not to watch the film and deconstruct his methodology because if we were to do that, you know, it's obvious that it's pretty poor. But um, I think what the movies have done is to keep a narrative of archaeology and the, the material past in the public domain quite effectively and the trouble with archaeology is it's a very niche subject and a very niche area of, of history, of historical study or historical inquiry. So it it's something that not a lot of people know a lot about. So I suppose, you know, the old saying that any publicity is good publicity. So I think in a way Indiana um, has helped in that respect. It's just really important for kids to not go off and treasure hunt and, you know, pick things up out of the ground and think they can just take them home, that we um, impart a proper sense of stewardship to to young people or people that engage with archaeology through mass media like Indiana Jones um, to avoid it, the past kind of being taken over by a whole generation of treasure hunters. But I think it's, you know, it's been both good and bad and that's the way with most things. Right now, can, can I ask you, what, what what's probably the most uh, the most interesting uh, place you've ever, you've ever conducted a dig? It depends on what you mean by um, and. Sorry, go on. Well, the most interesting, sorry, the most interesting, the, the most beautiful, the most most breathtaking place, you know, landscape you've been in, even if that narrows it down a bit more. Um, and also what, what's what's the, the most remarkable thing you've ever found as well? So some of that sort of takes your breath away and you think this is, this you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime find. Okay. So unfortunately I've never had that experience in terms of the once-in-a-lifetime find. Um, but I would say probably my most enjoyable experience as an archaeologist was when I did some of my own fieldwork research for my honours thesis at university. I did um, some survey at a, in a particular place called Wadi Al Hale in Fujairah, which is one of the United Arab Emirates. So this was a, 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 an abandoned sheikh's palace but had been um, utilised by humans for probably about 1,500 years in total. So the sheikh's palace only uh, kind of represented the last 150 years of use, but it had lots of different 
um, elements to the landscape that humans had used over time. So there was a, another fortified area that was about a thousand years old. There were some structures that were about fifteen hundred years old, some kind of primitive houses. So I really enjoyed surveying that um, area because I got to go up into the mountains of, in Fujairah in the UAE and just kind of wander around and take in the landscape, looking for for sites to um, to catalogue and put um, into my thesis. So I really enjoyed that experience. I like surveying. Surveying's lovely. Um, I haven't really found anything remarkable. The majority of my experience and um, has been excavating uh, burials in the Middle East, in, in the UAE mostly. So I have a lot of experience digging up very old people who died and then got shoved in a, a spot for a particular reason. So the most remarkable thing, and it's probably not that remarkable, but it was the most remarkable thing that I, I had been um, a part of was I dug as part of a, a, a Sydney University team uh a multiple interment tomb from the Wadi Souk period. So it was about 3,800 years old um, in, again, in Fujairah in the UAE. So it was a really long 20 metre tomb that had a, it was semi subterranean, so half dug into the ground. And then it had a corbel vaulted uh, uh, roof over the top of it with lots of huge stones. And there was about 120 individuals that were in that that burial altogether. So this was something that was used over a long period of time, you know, some two, three hundred years. Uh, we have no idea about the relationship of the people to each other, but they could have been part of a, the same tribe or kinship group or even just the same settlement area. That everyone was buried in the same place. And it was um, it was disappointing because, you know, and this is not unusual when you, you dig tombs um, from the past in Egypt and any parts of the, the near or Middle East, it had been robbed in antiquity, so all of the good stuff was gone. No gold, silver. We only found one bronze arrowhead, which was the only metal find that we found at all. So there was nothing really of value in the tomb, but I found it interesting because of the way that the, the narrative around the tomb had been, well, I, you know, I constructed in my mind, I suppose you could say. So it had been used and these people had been put in the tomb and then later on in its history, and we have no idea when it had been broken into, in the side, someone had kind of, um, uh, I don't know what the right word is excavated, but that you know, not systematically like an archaeologist, but kind of broken into the tomb, not in, in, at its actual entrance, but into the side and dug a hole through, you know, scrambled through all of the bones that were in there, chucked some of them outside, obviously looking for all of the precious items, took whatever they took, and we don't know what they took, and then kind of left the bones outside, and then another structure was built around that later. So it, it had a really long and interesting. Um, usage this tomb it wasn't just a, a one-off thing it wasn't a single burial at, at one particular time but had been used and abused by humans in at, at different points in time over a few hundred years so that's probably the most interesting thing I've dug but nothing that you would say necessarily takes pride of place in a museum or was really of much value right thanks for that now you mentioned your uh, your honors thesis and um I was on your on your website recently um, and he mentioned something about a PhD. Yes. Are you currently undertaking this? Yes, I've just started. So I started in 2018, but I am going very slowly um, as a person who is working full-time as well. So it is a very part-time PhD. The PhD um, that I'm pursuing is looking at the role of archaeology in education, but specifically looking at teacher professional learning and seeing whether or not the types of professional learning that teachers are being offered and the support um, documents and resources that are available for teachers about archaeology are actually um, useful and which ones are the most useful and uh, which 
forms of professional learning in archaeology translate best to the classroom and have improved student outcomes. So it's fairly, it, it's deep, but it's not particularly broad. It's specifically looking at, at um, archaeology professional learning for teachers, which is quite important now that um, the Australian curriculum and now the, the rewritten NESA syllabuses for the Australian curriculum have um, specifically got an archaeology component both in year seven and then in the senior courses as well. So we've always had that in New South Wales. But now around Australia, all history teachers have to teach archaeology and archaeological methodologies. So most teachers wouldn't have encountered archaeology in their undergrad degrees at university. Some have, but from you know anecdotal experience from me in terms of the teachers that I speak to, and I speak to a lot of them about archaeology in various different capacities, probably only about 10 to 15 percent have actually studied it as a subject and now they have to teach it. So what we want to do is make sure they teach it well. But there aren't a lot of um, professional learning experiences for teachers that really I think impart the kind of haptic, sensory, kinesthetic nature um, and and complex problem-solving that's involved in archaeology. It's not enough to sit there um, in a lecture theatre for, you know, your stock standard professional learning and listen to someone talk about it. It's much more effective, I've found, to actually do it. So what I have been involved with through the University of Tasmania is um, offering professional learning opportunities for teachers where they actually get to participate in an archaeological excavation, a real one, not a simulated one, a real one. So i um, gone to Tasmania three times now to be involved in, in these projects. And what I found is, um, and this is what kind of has spurred my official research in this direction, but anecdotally i found that teachers have taken to this kind of hands-on professional learning and although it was you know at first overwhelming and um, a bit daunting but the experiential nature of it has really helped them get a, a, a really thorough and deep understanding of what archaeology is all about and then they've been able to take that back to their own schools and design simulated excavations themselves or at the very least to be able to um, impart to students a real sense of what it's like to work as an archaeologist. Yeah, look, and this is you know perfect segue into um into what I wanted to speak about in terms of the actual the role of archaeology in education and, and in history and why it's important for students to actually be exposed to it. Mm. Um, you know, personally, even you mentioned before, you know, the um the the teacher education element of it. Even when I did my BA, I did four units of of uh, undergraduate history, and um, you know, knowing full well that a lot of people that did the BA at this particular university would then go on to become educators. Yeah. Uh, there was no, um, there was no uh, archaeology uh, element at all. Um, it was, it was purely just that um, that history, um, history theory that was that was um, given to us. Yeah. Um, so even myself, te- then going into into secondary schools and teaching history, um, having to teach the archaeology component, a lot of it came from having to access my own professional development or through other yeah. educators as yeah. opposed to being able to rely on what I've learned at university. So mm-hmm. um, you mentioned your work with University of Tasmania. I know that you run some other great um, uh, archaeology profession development, um, but w- w- why is it so important that students have that archaeology background in history? So you mentioned that it's now incorporated through throughout the history curriculum. Yeah. Why? Why has it been put in there? Why is it so important? 
I think it's taken a very long time to get to this this place, and it's such a pity. Um, for many years, I think archaeology has been considered the, you know, and this is often um, bandied about, the handmaiden of history. So something that's kind of in conjunction with history or a branch of history, whereas archaeology, I think, is, is something that's just as important as historical inquiry in its own right. If you think about human history, um, historical, traditional historical documents or the traditional histories that we tend to study, it's, it's less so now in the modern era, but particularly in the ancient and medieval times, it's what we call history from above mostly. So it's, you know, history written by the victors, history written by, by men, mostly white men. It doesn't take into account often um, the experiences of uh, women or minorities or uh, other people who are not the ones who are the educated ones. So the histories that we get and we read tend to be a very narrow view, whereas archaeology has the potential to open up our understanding of what it was like in the past for everybody, for children, for women, for um, people of different religions, people of different ethnicities, from people who were the conquered as opposed to the conquerors. So looking at, at how people lived through looking at their objects gives us an idea, a much fuller understanding of um, particular uh, eras in history. And it's not just ancient, ancient history either. It Even in the modern era, um, examining artefacts and looking at uh, the kinds of things that people used in, in modern times in places that do have a history of or, or do have a, a tendency to repress histories or to write official histories as opposed to what's really happening um, gives us a much better understanding of what's going on. So I think archaeology is, you know, of equal importance to the historical record and particularly for pre-literate societies like um societies that aren't literate at all, like um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who had oral histories only, archaeology is a way of, of being able to really supplement our knowledge. And we don't have any written histories from, from these people. So we have stories that have been passed down and they're very rich and, and help us understand Aboriginal history and culture. But archaeology is vital for those um, societies as well in understanding how they lived and how they uh, used the resources that were available to them and um, their, their life ways. So I think that's why it's really important and um, I think it's been far too far too long archaeology has kind of been shoved to the side as being something that's only of interest in, in the, ancient, the realm of ancient history and then only peripheral of that. I think it's time that archaeology is really recognised as having a central role in our understanding of the past, and I'm glad that it's been recognised in the official syllabus documents in that way. I'd love to see um, more teachers be a little bit more ambitious in the kinds of elective courses that they also um, put forward for their students and to to bring in more archaeology in those ones, even if it is medieval. I mean, there's just there's a plethora of, of archaeological material out there for the medieval period, and it's fantastic if you look at some of the, especially the, the burials and the castles and, and um, the sorts of things that they um, dig up in Europe. It's really fascinating, and I think that there are lots of spaces in the curriculum where, or lots of places, I should say, not spaces, places where we can interject archaeology just to add a, a level of richness, even if it's not mandated or it's not something that would be considered to be normal like world war ii we have got a, a hell of a lot of of ships and submarines that have been sunk that have been um you know excavated 
I suppose you could call it, although it's a little bit different, um, by maritime archaeologists. And they, they're so interesting. Can you imagine how engaging it would be for a student to, you know, they're not just learning a list of battles, but they're actually looking at 3D images and underwater footage of the actual battleships themselves and the um, submarines that have been sunk and understanding more about the nature of warfare from looking at the um, those sorts of things. So I think that's why archaeology um, sh- should be included um you know, much more often and at a much deeper level than it has been. But we are heading in the right direction, which is really promising. Thanks for that. I, now, across um, throughout this episode so far, you've mentioned a, a few different um, locations and time periods. I've got to ask: Have, have you got a, have you got a, a favourite um, time period that for you to study? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you, you mean for my teaching, or just out of my own personal interest? In, out of your own personal interest. I, I wouldn't say I have a specific time period, but I've always loved the archaeology um, of Iran. So looking at, at Persia and um, the not just the, the you know the, your typical Persian Empire period, but the Achaemenid period and other ones that are a bit lesser known. I think that's because my first major project that I did at university um, was on a site, and no one will have heard of this site. It's called Tepe Hisar. And I had to go in there and deconstruct the the um, site report that was done back in the 1920s, and to kind of rewrite it or reconfigure it in a in a better way. Um, so I got to know this site really well. It's it's, it's a peripheral site that's on the edge of the Iranian um, plateau, that's in the northeast. So it's something that's not particularly well known, but. Um, it was a really important kind of thoroughfare, trading thoroughfare. So part of the Silk Road came through there. It's a site with a really interesting history, a really long history as well. And I think that's what got me interested in Iran. So I, I really, I really love Iranian history and archaeology, and um, I just, it's a shame. And I think this was kind of also um, spurned on by my my main professor in Near Eastern archaeology, Professor Dan Potts at Sydney University when I was an undergrad doing my BA. He was a, um, an Iranian specialist. And he had previously in his undergrad studies with Harvard gone to and excavated in Iran and then, of course, um, the revolution came and it was blocked to Westerners. So I never got to dig there and it was only um, maybe 15 or or so years ago that anyone was able to get, any Westerners were able to get back in there and and, um, excavate again. Uh, So I think that that's probably where my greatest interest lies and if I had to pick anywhere in the world that I'd like to go and dig it would be Iran although I don't think that's going to happen now considering my age and my um you know the place in life that I am I don't think I'll be able to go anywhere other than Australia to do digs anymore but yeah Iran would be it if I had to pick a place. Thank thank you for that um in in terms of history uh, history teaching though do you have a particular favorite um you know I, I love doing ancient Egypt and I love doing medieval Europe. Do you have a, in, in, in the stage four, yeah. so the, the seven and eight junior history, is there anything, uh, what's your favourite um, period or, or, or place to teach? I have to say um, ancient Australia. So it's only been in the syllabus for a few years, but I absolutely love teaching it. And that's for a number of reasons. Firstly, I think it's really important that students understand the deep past of the country in which they live. So I think that um, finally, We are acknowledging officially that um, Australia has a a past that's 65,000 years old, a human past 65,000 years old, and that um, it should play an important role in uh, students' understanding of the history of this continent. So I'm I'm really grateful and glad that that's now very clearly articulated in the syllabus. 
Um, it's also important because it's the archaeology that's all around us as well. So even in Sydney, there are dozens of sites that you can visit to um, have a look at, at the kind of ways in which Aboriginal people lived and the sites that they had, the resources they exploited. Uh, you know, they're peppered everywhere around the Sydney Basin. Um, and I think it's also, for, for that reason, an important step towards reconciliation as well that um and I, I know we're coming up to Australia Day and it's always a difficult uh topic for people to talk about and there's always a lot of vitriol that goes on social media in terms of you know is this the right date to have for Australia Day and and talking about uh, genocide dispossession and all the things that went along with um the British invasion but I think that through an understanding of Australia's deep history and the complexity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, culture and civilization, we can take a huge step towards reconciliation. And I think that looking at Australia's ancient past and archaeology in that respect, even if it's just at, at the level of Year 7, but now we can teach it in extension as well in frontier violence, but looking at that is a way of, of bringing us closer to um, reconciling with our our rich ancient history but also our more recent darker history yeah look um thank 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 you very much for that um you mentioned a a little a while ago as well about marine archaeology um can can you talk the listeners through a little bit more about about what that is and how they can access it and and what other information that can give uh give us to give us a a fuller picture of of a certain location or a certain time Mm, period absolutely so I will make a, a small correction and uh, say it is maritime archaeology as opposed to marine archaeology. Um, oh, no, no, you don't have to apologise. A lot of people make that mistake. Um, so maritime being anything that's on the high seas, obviously. So I'll tell you a, a very short, funny story. It's not really very funny, but I actually wanted to be a maritime archaeologist when I was at university. So I was desperate, absolutely desperate to become a maritime archaeologist and join the Sydney Harbour Foreshore Authority and to actually, you know, be an archaeologist working in Sydney in that capacity. But at that time I was petrified of sharks. So that stopped me from um, pursuing the the, uh, strand of archaeology that I was most interested in and, you know, different things happened after that. I've now actually overcome my fear of sharks, but I think my window's closed in terms of becoming a maritime archaeologist. But my interest in it hasn't waned at all. So maritime archaeology is looking basically um, at shipwrecks mostly. So human endeavours to cross the sea or to transport themselves and other things from one place to another, things go wrong, the ship sinks, and then archaeologists who are also divers uh, go down to where the site of the shipwreck or whatever it is, um, or, you know, not even shipwrecks, it can be um, settlements and even just um, shorelines that have now been enveloped by the sea. So um, for example, um, Alexandria in Egypt is a prominent uh, example that most people would be able to, you know, have some sort of fami- familiarity with in terms of the ancient city now being underwater. Um, but the coastline of Australia too in, in recent years has had quite a bit of uh, exploration by maritime archaeologists who are trying to have a look at what the climate was like in Australia you know, 20, 30, 40,000 years ago and why how sea levels have changed and, and why different parts of the continent um, are now underwater or were underwater and now exposed or those sorts of things. But the most interesting thing, obviously, about maritime archaeology are the shipwrecks. So in some areas of the world, shipwrecks can actually give us a lot of information about trade 
and what people were doing and who they were communicating with, which civilizations were communicating with each other. So particularly in the Mediterranean, there are lots and lots and lots of shipwrecks. So we have, you know, Roman ships full of amphora and um, other goods for trade that just plonk and sink down in, in the middle of the Mediterranean and they get excavated and we can learn a lot about trade from that. It's also really interesting because it's a shipwreck is very much like a, it's kind of like a, a Pompeii in as much as the people may not go down with a ship, but the, the site itself is a snapshot in time. So whatever happens to that ship when it's going down, it stays like that. People don't really get time to to salvage things and, and take them with them or anything like that. It's pretty much just them, if they manage to get on a boat and get away, that's that's their, their survival. And everything goes down with the ship. So they're really fascinating in terms of being sites that haven't been abandoned in the normal kind of way. So normally you'd have a, a site that's occupied as a settlement and people decide to move in different parts of the site or they decide to move somewhere else and they abandon the settlement, but they take most of their stuff with them um, because they have time to, to, you know, to plan and put some forethought into it and to not leave things of value behind. But for uh, a shipwreck, it's instantaneous, well, not instantaneous, but, you know, it's very quick. It goes down and it, it pretty much is, it is how it is. So I love that aspect of, of shipwrecks and, and the fact that they're, they are snapshots or representative sites of what was happening at that moment in the past. And we have a really rich history of shipwrecks in Australia. There's lots of them around the country. A lot of them um, people probably don't know very much about. There's some off Norfolk Island and Tasmania which are, have to do with um, the convict era. There's a very famous shipwreck in um, off Western Australia called the Batavia, uh, that which is a great story. That's if if you ever want to include anything um, in terms of maritime archaeology that's going to engage students' interest, um, do the story of the Batavia. There's a, a a partial reconstruction of the ship itself that managed to get lifted out of the ocean in the Fremantle uh, Maritime Museum in Western Australia. They've managed to salvage a whole bunch of stuff from the ship, but the survivors actually went to, um, made their way to an island and, and ended up having to eat each other. It's a really gruesome and gory story, but it, it's highly engaging and is a really good way of introducing maritime archaeology to students in an Australian context. I always like to, if I can, um, to try and incorporate Australian archaeology in there as much as as, uh, as I can if I'm teaching anything, purely because um, a lot of students in years gone by, probably less so now, it's, it's you know, the balance is being redressed, but in years gone by, students associated archaeology with um, basically uh, the Mediterranean, so Rome, Greece, Egypt, those sorts of civilizations, which are the ones that people first think of. But there's so much archaeology in, in Mesoamerica and um, in other parts of the world as well, in China, in Australia. So including archaeology from other areas other than the traditional ones that we think about, I think is also important in broadening students' understanding. And uh, introducing maritime archaeology is one way of doing that because it's uh, um, not something that everybody knows a lot about. It's not something that most people come into contact with in the um, mass media or news media or anything like that. So it can be really interesting. Now, your general garden variety shipwreck is going to be way too deep uh, for any kind of recreational diver, but there are some that are um, uh, that are diveable. So I actually um, did a dive at the SS Yongala, which is up off the coast of Townsville a few years ago. So that was just a passenger ship that was heading up the coast towards Townsville and sunk in the, 19, I think it was 1922 from memory. 
So that dive is actually um, at 30 metres, so I, I had the right qualification to dive that. But it, it's it's an amazing thing to be able to see a ship underwater with not only um, how it's changed in terms of the marine life that's adapted around it and the incredible way in which it, it's become its own kind of ecosystem, but to think about the people that were on that ship at the time and, and what happened to them and, and, you know, thinking of the history about it as well and, and reading about it before you do it, so... I love my maritime archaeology. It just my window is unfortunately closed, so I'm not going to get there, much to my disappointment, but I can still enjoy it vicariously. Thank you very much. And look, and um, you mentioned the Batavia, and um, I, I can't um, not mention the, the book by Peter Fitzsimons, yeah. uh, Batavia, as well. Um, I do have a copy. I'm yet to read it. I need to find a few years of my life <laughs> where I can sink into that, you know, five or six hundred page, whatever it is, um, sort of um, monster of a book. Yeah. But I will, uh, I will get to that one um, after I've uh, read his uh, account of um, uh, of uh, Douglas Mawson's Antarctic no. expeditions, which is just which is just as big a book. Yeah. So it's, I'm going to be uh, in there for a bit. Look, before we finish off. Um, Okay, you mentioned right at the start um, to try and make archaeology really tactile and really, um, really hands-on to to really get kids uh, engaged into yeah. it. Um, let's say you're a school that you, you can't you can't build a sand pit in the you know in, on the uh, in the oval and and hide some stuff for the kids to dig up. Um, what what other um, strategies can you suggest um, that teachers can use to make archaeology a bit more tactile if they can't actually build a you know like a, 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 a fake um archaeological dig pit on their site okay so it's all about the artifacts obviously and the association of the artifacts with each other so the actual the, the funny thing is about archaeology the actual excavation itself and the field work is probably only about 10 percent of our time when we're um researching something so there's a whole bunch of research that happens before we go in the field and even more research and analysis that happens after so the actual digging itself isn't that important except that it's just fun for the kids what you can do if you can't set up an archaeological dig, you should get um, an artifact assemblage to kind of think about recreating a scene and just recreate it on the floor of a classroom or in some sort of a space that you have, an indoor space at school. Lay the artifacts out in the manner that they would have been excavated and then the students can just they just bypass the actual physical digging part but they can record the site as it is. They can take the artifacts, they can analyse them, and then they can draw the conclusions the way archaeologists would. So you don't actually have to have the physical outdoor space to do that. You can set it up in any kind of classroom. If that's even still too restrictive in terms of um, the space that you're able to have, artifact analysis is something that um, gets students thinking in archaeological ways. I know that sounds really silly, but when you're engaging with an archaeological source as opposed to an historical document, there's very different thought processes going on. So when you're looking at a document, you're reading it, you're thinking about it, but there isn't a lot of um, engagement or sensory activity happening, whereas, the tac- as we, you were saying, the tactile experience of holding an artefact, feeling it, looking at it, measuring it, drawing it, all those sorts of things, that's quite different to the cognitive processes that a student is going through when they're actually reading an, an historical text. So even if you just get some replica artifacts, that they don't even have to be replica, you can go, what I would advise teachers to do is contact a local archaeological firm wherever you are and just say to them, do you have a box of artifacts that you don't want? I will guarantee you that they do. Uh, the archaeological firms that I deal with here in Sydney, they literally have storerooms full 
of boxes of artifacts that are decontextualized. So they haven't come from a particular context that they can make any kind of meaning from. So it's from a cesspit, which is, you know, kind of like a toilet or a well or something like that, where people just chuck stuff in there and it doesn't really, the actual context doesn't have a lot of meaning. So they can't do much with these artifacts except put them in a box and then they have to store them by law. They can't throw them away. So go get a couple of boxes of artifacts and just engage students in feeling them, touching them, looking at the different types of artifacts, looking at the different ways of recording them and thinking about the information that can be gleaned or can be understood about the past by looking at material culture as opposed to reading about history. So even just doing small things like that, even if you just do it basic artifact handling, that's going to engage students in thinking archaeologically or think, using the thought processes that archaeologists do when they're out in the field and then later on when they're in the lab. Of course, I'm going to advocate if you can and you can have the space and you don't need a lot of it, it only has to be something very small. It can be set up in a raised garden bed. It can be set up in a trailer and, you know, stored somewhere where you don't even need to, to have it in the one spot all the time. But, you, you know, do the simulation if you can and do it well. But if you can't, then kind of scale it back from there. Do the classroom excavation. If not, do the artifact handling. And then you know that students will be engaging in the processes that archaeologists um, do as well. And they'll be getting, if not, you know, 100% realistic version, they'll be getting 60, 70, 80% idea of what um, what kinds of things archaeologists do and the importance of archaeology in terms of our understanding of the past. Right. Thank you for that, Melissa. Now, um, we're about to finish off. Is there any final uh, final words you'd like to leave the listeners? Um, I probably think that I would like to tell you all to don't be afraid. Archaeology is not something that um, necessarily has to be daunting. It's important that we impart the right kinds of ideas to students. So please don't be afraid to ask an archaeologist for help, get them to come to the classroom or um, volunteer on an excavation, learn a little bit more yourself. And then Take it to the classroom and um, do your best with it. But don't don't kind of – I see lots of teachers put it in the too hard basket and they'll just do something, some sort of small textbook activity or something like that to teach kids about archaeology. And that's just like – it's not teacher's fault, but that's not even going to be close to be adequate in terms of students understanding what archaeology is like. So be a bit brave, be a bit bold go out there and engage yourself in archaeology and then bring it back to the classroom and try and engage students as well because the better understanding they have of how archaeology contributes to the past, the better stewards we're going to be training up in order to ensure that um, our precious sites and artefacts and history that's in the museum is going to be preserved and appreciated in generations to come. Right, well, Melissa, thank you very, very much for appearing on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. To continue the conversation, find us on Twitter at hashtag HouseChat. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. AEON.net.au